Basically, how much time did you spend in the hospital? About four days. They had me on Dilaudid the entire time. Also that week, and it almost feels like this was a Dilaudid fever dream, but this really I've never happened. taken Dilaudid. Well, I needed it, and I woke up, and I swear to Christ, the association had asked me to be their manager. And then wow. just as soon as that happened, it then... Did you say, it, what do you say to that? I said, let's, uh, you know, let's give it... Pay. Right. No, I went to see them out in, uh, out in Long Island, and I told them, you know, and I've not mentioned anything about this on the show because I like to wait. Are they going things. places? No. So theirs is sort of a super ultra slim down version of what you guys have, which is, you know, you're using the mouthpiece of your legacy to talk to the generation of folk who came up around you guys. Well, theirs is decades past decades removed and they stayed together unlike you guys but they never did anything that had any artistic integrity to it after 1972 so instead they've been playing the ever disappearing old age circuit and so i told them i'm not interested in that what i'd be interested in is if you guys after 51 years decided to make a fucking rock opera and it was super fucking ambitious and you started going after a different crowd then i'm on board and that's what we were discussing but then it all disappeared like it was a delauded fever dream right Interesting. so that's that's crazy it was weird it was like i dreamt it because i was having multiple calls a day with jim yester and jules alexander from the band it was going to happen then that was it it was almost like i, yeah. I really dreamt it all Discography, the podcast that gives Gen X music maniacs a chance to smell like teen spirit again by connecting with a brotherhood obsessed with rating the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever mattered. I'm your host, Dave Gebro, and with three new episodes each week, you're going to gain a comprehensive knowledge of an act's history and output in the time it takes to listen to one album. And in this episode, we'll be turning our spray cans on the two founders of possibly the greatest soft pop act of all time, purveyors of such fine, fine hits as Along Comes Mary, Cherish, Wendy, and Never My Love, Terry Kirkman and Jules Alexander from the Association in a five-part series called From an Unprecedented 13-Hour Interview! Along with our very special guests, Terry and Jules themselves, not to mention the great Bob Nastanovich, otherwise known as the beating, pounding heartbeat of indie rock demigods pavement. That clip is from a pair of upcoming episodes slated for September 22nd and 29th, so mark those calendars. Coming up, we've got Deer Tick, Mike Watt rating the entirety of the Minutemen's output, Corey Hansen from Wand rating everything he's ever done, and Steve Turner from Mud Honey. So don't miss out. Open up your listening app right now and subscribe. Look, lads and ladies, I gotta tell you something from the heart. <laughs> 
I spent a long time thinking about whether or not to turn this into its own episode or even to mention any of this stuff because obviously I have to search my intentions to see if I'm being retributive or petty or what really is the reason for talking about this. And ultimately, what I found is that I don't harbor any ill will, even though I did a whole bunch of work on spec. I spent a lot of time and I was very excited about it once I got through my head and started telling people around me that this was actually going down because the words being used were pretty definitive. They were not wishy-washy. I did not imagine that this was happening. And ultimately, they knew that at that time, that we started becoming very engaged, that I had come very, very close to bleeding to death and was very much on the mend, but not even close to being mended. So it cast the entire thing in a particular kind of light because of that. But ultimately, after putting in as much research as I did and still really loving the band and thinking they're one of the all-time great bands that ever passed through the music industry, that doing a 13-hour interview would simply be incomplete without all the rest of the facts. And just want all you guys to know that all I seek on this show is the motherfucking truth at whatever cost. And whatever part I played in this thing, so be it. Onward and upward, and long live the association. You're one of those bands where it's like the gift that keeps on giving. Cool, but thanks. To change tax here, Terry, have you ever, be honest here, have you ever masturbated thinking about how many people have fucked to cherish? Yes. You have? Did you reach yes. completion every time? You mean today or yesterday? Yeah, exactly. In all seriousness, when you wrote Cherish, did you know that you had written a masterpiece? Did you know it was going to be a big hit? I know you wrote it in 10 minutes, right? I received it in 27. Hey, lads and ladies, Dave Gebro here. I abandoned my career and moved my family 3,000 miles to be able to focus exclusively on discography. And so if you're like me and enough is just never enough, then please visit patreon.com slash discography and become one of our Patreon soldiers of sound. Discography is an entirely listener-supported show, and it's also intended to be a three-times-a-week music deep-dive experience. So do us both a favor and consider giving it a shot. Trust me, I'm working hard for the money, so hard for it, honey. There's the main show on Friday, a Monday wildcard episode, which is either a soul-bearing interview with that week's special guest, or an offshoot show like Queasy Listening and Rock Cousteau. And then on Wednesdays, there's the humdinger of them all. Discography's the top 10. You got nothing to lose. If you don't dig it after a month, you're refunded. No questions asked. Once again, that's patreon.com slash discography. Here's a cornucopia of reasons why you cannot afford to miss next week, the following week, the following week, and the following week's association series. No matter how you feel about the band or even how busy you are. We're all busy. Excuses are for quitters. And frankly, this show's not going to just listen to itself. You can make a pie out of anything. All it takes is crust. Yeah. And you see yourself as kind of a crusty specimen yourself, right? Are you crusty pie? Sort of how I would like to appear. Yes, yes. No, you're not. I don't think you are. I think uh, only a veneer. It's the M&M candy shell. Well, 
Everyone needs an armored coating. Fuck you, Dave. This is a truly unique series in the history of discography, and there's many reasons for that. The beginning of this thing is when I reached out to Terry Kirkman of the 1960s soft pop band, The Association, and asked him if he would do an interview with me about the band and do a hot seat episode in lieu of somebody talking about their favorite band and rating them. Bob Nastanovich, who kicked off proceedings here, started off the hot seat series, which is basically rating your own material and it takes a certain amount of objectivity and distance to pull something like that off. Terry interestingly warned me from the outset that he may or may not measure up to my conception of him as an artist. From there he got his good friend and pal from the early days Jules Alexander involved one of the original bandmates of his and then Ruth Ann Friedman who wrote the song Windy got involved. So now I had three people I was going to be interviewing. I amassed an insane amount of notes. And then when the interview finally went down, it wound up being 13 hours long. In addition to that, it was also them rating the entirety of their own output. And I've been sitting on this series now for a long time, for six months, during which I pondered a gaggle of what seemed to me like totally unanswerable riddles. Will people care enough about this? Do people besides me still care about soft pop or even the association specifically? I know how much I love them, but will I lose the audience I so carefully built up over the last 18 months over a band whom I'm giving far too much emphasis to? Does anyone give a shit? And the conclusion I came to is that so much time went into this, not to mention the editing, etc., that as a way to address my thoroughly skewed sense of work-life balance, I've decided to have the Association series be all that I air for a month. After all, each episode ranges from an hour and a half to two and a half hours, so it's going to be more than enough to digest during that time. So after the completion of what was four approximately three hour segments, Jules Alexander wound up, and you can hear it in the actual episode, inviting me and my father to Long Island to see the association open for Tommy James. Terry Kirkman is no longer actually in the band, so it became Jules and I at that point. I went out and uh, we had a blast hanging out backstage with all the guys, seeing the band. So a few weeks go by and I'm in Vermont. My phone rings. It's Jules. He wants to know, do I have any advice on where to send a bunch of recordings that he did with a band formed with Russ Jaguer from the association just after the association had broken up in the early 70s. It's basically an uber low-key supergroup. Super, of course, being in quotation marks, out of which one actual recording has been officially released and none of it's been reissued. He wanted some help. I said, sure. I gave him three suggestions off the top of my head, and then there was a pause in the conversation. I'm pretty good at reading people, and I knew what he wanted me to do was to act on his behalf and reach out to those companies. So I said, fuck it, sure. 
Now, I have been a music manager in my time on this planet. I've managed uh, several bands, but it's really not my focus. So I gave Jules my input on where I thought would be a, an appropriate home for him to house the Bijou material. And so I did. I reached out to three record companies to see if there was interest. Then what happened was Jules started regaling me with Carrot on a Stick offers to be his personal manager, which honestly would have probably been almost as lucrative as working in a fast food restaurant. Jim Yester came into the picture at this point and we started talking about big picture plans for the band itself, for the association. What I was thinking was, big changes. Talking about putting on a show with the Wild Honey Orchestra, getting a newfound sense of hype and heat behind the band since they had really only been trudging the nostalgia circuit at that point for decades. So with them I was talking about swapping out setlist material, uh, starting to include deep cuts in their live set that had nothing to do with the hits, swapping out personnel, and finally looking in a big picture sense looking at repairing a very tarnished legacy and also getting into some serious discussions about putting a new record together that was a rock opera that would have been truly the first step in regaining and reclaiming an aesthetic greatness that had eluded them from if you want to know my personal opinion for 51 years Frankly, that's not a controversial assessment. The guys were excited about the idea. They were excited about swinging things in a direction that would you know, allow them to aesthetically hit the pillow at night and be able to go to sleep. And then just like that, it was over. And just to be clear, I did not ask to be their manager. In fact, the notion never even crossed my mind once. So the call stopped, and when I reached out and asked Jules why, he said he did better putting things in writing. So no problem. I just you know sat back and awaited you know him getting back to me, and uh, nothing. So 23 days later, I contacted Jules again, and what it was was when Jules had complained about the personnel who were currently in the band, uh, I told him, you know, I had a great idea, which was to reach out to Ruth Ann Friedman, who'd written one of their biggest hits, Wendy, and asked, hey, would it be something that she would consider to actually be in the association? She was never in the band, and she was always good friends with them. Jules was excited about the idea, Ruth Ann was excited about the idea. Idea. And for whatever reason, here's what Jules wrote to me. David, your decision to Ruth Ann to this gathering without consultation with the others involved was unacceptable. I'm done. Actually, Jules was brought into it. So I don't understand exactly what happened, but I decided that the only way to really do this series justice was to break the fourth wall and be bold in explaining exactly what the fuck went down here. Life is crazy, man. But in my personal opinion, certain members of the association may actually be crazier than life itself. It doesn't change a thing for me, though. This was a great band back in the day when they were recording entity and try as he did to warn me I came out of this thing with all the respect in the universe for Terry Kirkman that's where it started that's where it'll end 
The Association series is absolutely, totally, brutally honest about a number of things, including the rampant drug abuse in the band, the dislike and sometimes hatred that exists between almost all the members of the outfit, including some revelations that had never even been disclosed between Terry and Jules, and the two of them have been close friends for over 60 years. Why don't we first spin the dial back and explain why this is a band that needs to be taken seriously. First of all, they kind of created the entire genre. There really was no sunshine pop genre before the association came along. Even though the whole thing kind of descended from Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys, these guys got this thing started along with Kurt Betcher, the producer of their debut record. Also, the Association was the very first band at the very first rock festival of the modern era. They were the opening act of Monterey Pop. In addition of their giant, towering hits, a small handful, Cherish, Never My Love, and Windy especially, are such monsters that no matter what happens with their legacy, those three songs aren't going anywhere. I'm sure you've heard them. Maybe you haven't put them on yourself, but your parents sure have. Also, this is the longest interview I have ever done at 13 hours total, and there are tons of totally crazy, unexpected moments that will absolutely never happen again in this show's history, I'm sure. Also, belying their fey, limp-wristed reputation as artists, Terry Kirkman actually, before the association's formation, played with Frank Zappa. Also, not many people know because, again, of their reputation, but there was actually a heroin overdose and death in the band in 1972. Jules Alexander is actually one of the very first meditation-based India seekers who left the band right before Monterey Pop went down in the spring of 1967 to learn meditation in India and did it a year before the Beatles did. Look, for me personally, this was an absolutely wild ride of an occasion. And for you guys, I'm hoping that the craziness spills over because this was truly an event for me. This was more than just an interview. This was a life event for me. So unfold those arms, open those ears, and we'll see you next Friday and several Fridays henceforth, lads and ladies, at 4 a.m. Eastern Standard Time for the Association series on Discography. We'll leave you now with Terry and Jules rating me for once. How would you rate Dave's show? This is amazing. This is just amazing. I give him a four. A four <laughs> and a half. Maybe okay, five. Fuck it. <laughs> I know you, Terry. I know you're going to be harsher. Oh, of course. I would give you a really strong three as a 51-year-old man, as enthusiastic as you are and as invested in your opinion as you are. You're going to have to work around that. Stay tuned for a super secret surprise guest. Born in the Bronx, our super secret surprise guest moved to California with her family, but felt isolated with few friends, and so started playing guitar in her room. And thank God for those turn of events, since her first song gained her a spot on the television talent show Rocket to Stardom when she was 12 years old. While still in high school, she started playing Hoot Nights <laughs> at the Troubadour. Her friendship with Van Dyke Parks begat an introduction to the association, who recorded her song Windy in 1967. And thank God for that, too. She wrote the song in, what, 20, 22 minutes? Was it 22? 
I wasn't keeping track of time, but it was a quickie, I'll tell you that. Quickie, like all the best of them. It came out in a burst, let's put it that way. She wrote the song in 20 minutes while living in an apartment in David Crosby's house, and it was a number one hit for four weeks solid at the height of the summer of love in July 67. Lads and ladies, throw a daisy in her general direction. It's the great Ruth Ann Friedman. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Oh, you are so funny. Thank you. What a wonderful introduction. I feel like the queen of, what is it, Friday? You're I the, am the Friday queen today. Thank you so much, Dave. I appreciate that. You are the perennial belle of the ball in my eyes. From your record, Chinatown, on the song, That's What I Remember, the lyric, I wrote a hit song, it was not what I planned. I'm going to sit back now while you extrapolate on that concept. I've heard all your work. You know, Wendy is kind of an outlier. Everyone knows you for a song that's most unlike what you do. Would you say that that's correct? I would say that that was correct at the time, especially. But I must say that after a while, I was then trying to repeat that for uh, A&M, and uh, that's what they wanted. And I must say, there are a few songs that I tried to replicate that with. But after I wrote Wendy, and at the time also, Wendy was a hit, a song that I recorded at Tandon Almers called Little Girl Lost and Found was also a hit, and I just didn't know what to do. So I went and joined a rock and roll band. I formed a rock and roll band with Yorma Kalkinen's brother Peter and moved to Half Moon Bay and lived up there for a year rehearsing in the basement with our band Petrus. That's what I did Actually, after Wendy. I left town. It's funny. I was talking with Terry about his relationship with Cherish and how he feels or conversely does not feel around, you know, the numbness after decades of having a relationship with this inanimate thing. What is currently your relationship with the song, Wendy? How do you feel when it's on? I think it's a sweet song. Oh, I'm happy to hear it. I'm happy when I'm in the supermarket and the cereal aisle and it comes over the Muzak. Of all the many songs that I have written, it is a song that has made a lot of people happy. And it's a song that a lot of people remember from that time, which was worth some difficult times, what was going on then, the 1967, that it was a song that made people happy. I can't complain about it. Do you feel like you've written songs that are better? Yeah. Chinatown, I'm very proud of. My husband says that the best song I ever wrote was a song called What a Joy that I wrote for my daughter. And it's a good song. An amazing thing. And I'm sure you've pondered this ad nauseum, but it's an incredible thing about your career because if you're to look at your career in a sort of facile way I'm sure you've been grouped a thousand times before in such company as Linda Perhax and Vashti Bunyan and these women who showed intense early promise and then there's decades-long gap in their releases but one thing that you have that they don't is it's one thing to have an accidental hit and it's another thing to have an accidental hit where you're at a time of probably the most fertile creative ground that had ever occurred in the music industry. You were the queen 
for all of July 67. And that's crazy considering the <laughs> underground, the overground, all of it was good. And you were towering above the whole thing. That's some accident. I certainly didn't experience it that way, Dave. But I thank you for that perspective. It's an interesting perspective. I really feel that I was fortunate in that I got a telephone call from, I believe it was Joellen Yester, who was then Jimmy Yester's wife, asking me if I had a song that would be good for them. There are all kinds of other tales going around about how that happened, but that's how it happened. And within a week, they were in the studio recording it, and it happened. I, it was just pure luck. And I am fortunate also to still be alive, which some of those other ladies are not. Do you love the delicious irony or the full circle strangeness of having written a song about LSD that's now the soundtrack to Shopping for Cereal? It wasn't about LSD. Well, it was about LSD, but it was also about, it was about pot. It was reaching out to capture a moment. Yeah, I guess it was more acidy. It was all about all of it. It was about the experience that we had as children of the 50s and 60s through the wonders of psychedelic drugs, that all that we had been taught was absolute reality with an absolute, pardon me, bullshit. And that thinking critically is so important. And that understanding that there are so many different ways of looking at things and so many different societies' ways of looking at things. And there are places where women are in charge of societies. And there are places where nobody's in charge, but they're all in charge. And all of the different anthropological and sociological things that we did not know that all of the rules that we took for granted because that's the way we were raised were not written in stone and that we could make our own rules and we could do it the way we thought was the right way and the moral way of doing things. That's somewhat what Wendy was about. That's the basis of it. That was the important lesson of the 60s and that gave right to the civil rights movement and the women's movement and the anti-Vietnam movement. We could challenge those things that we thought were wrong, that we did not have to accept them as truth. Boy, am I going at it, aren't I? No, this is, good. this is good. And I'm curious, just based hearing on you talking about it with the kind of vigor in which you're speaking, were your parents particularly conservative? Did they give you a bedrock of generational gap conflict to use for songwriting material? No, my father was a union organizer. They were lefties. My father didn't believe in Zionism. My mother was a nice Jewish girl from Brooklyn. But my father's family, the Freedmans, were my Aunt Molly was one of the original organizers of the labor unions in New York. They were powerful people. Morally, the way they looked at the world was the same way that their parents looked at the world. They might have seen politically one way, but your daughter was to be a good girl. Mm -hmm. You had to be a good girl. So were you a disappointment initially? Because did you run away from New York? No, I, we came here when I was 10. My father died when I was 15. I just started high school when my father passed away. He was a piece of work anyway, a very judgmental man. And I was alone a lot in my youth. 
So you understand, my mother was not the strongest person in the world, and she was trying to get her stuff together, and she did it. I'm very proud of what she did. She became a real estate agent in the San Fernando Valley, and she did it very well. And she took was able, after my father died, to take care of herself. She was saddled, unfortunately, with this troubled lonely, crazy, neurotic, depressed 15-year-old daughter. So she did the best she could. And I split when I was 18 and um, ran away with a flamenco guitarist from Kansas Perfect. named Bruce Patterson. We ended up in Denver, Colorado, living with some professors from DU. It's a long and convoluted story, Dave. Oh, I love it. You know, most people who are not students of music history, if they know you, it's simply for Wendy and that. That's it. But I want to really dive under the surface here. So first off, Jefferson Airplane wanted you to be their lead singer when Signe Anderson left, right? For a minute. For a minute. I was living with Jack and Marty, not his girlfriend or anything. Jack was with my dear friend Ginger at that time. But they let me stay in a room that they had. They had this wonderful big apartment top floor of this place on the panhandle. And they let me stay there. I I have always relied on the kindness of strangers. Were they at the mansion? No, this is before that. Jack and Marty had the whole top floor of a place of an apartment on the corner of Cole and Fell Mm -hmm. on the Panhandle. And one night, Yorma came over and Jack and Yorma took me to see the Great Society. And that was their way of saying to me, She's it. And I absolutely had no sorrow about it at all. I mean, it's obvious she was the rock and roll queen of San Francisco. And if they could get her to be their singer, then there was just no two ways about it. They did not need the chubby folk singer. They (laughs) needed Grace Slick. And uh, that worked out very well for them indeed, didn't it? Did you just say it with the chubby folk singer? They didn't need a chubby folk singer. I've seen pictures of you. You're like a... chubby folk singer yeah you're a wafer thin waif at the time maybe i never thought of myself that way though i've always thought of myself as a chubby folk singer anyway she was rock star gorgeous ready to go that minute you know i had no experience of any of that sort of thing so they did the smart thing and the only thing And I have no regrets about what they did. I had no bad feelings about what they did at all. They did the right thing for them. And I went on to uh, come back to Los Angeles. Were you living with the association when you were 21? Yes, I turned 21 in the association house. I did. They were playing at the Ice House at the time in Pasadena. Okay, so this is early. So the Ice House is... It was Jules and Jim. This This is is before they were anything. This is Jules and Jim. They had a room in their house, and they let me stay in that room. Lived in the house. Jules with, I don't know if you ever married her, Christy, and Jim was with Joellen, and I actually had to go through Jim and Joellen's room to get to my room. <laughs> it was exciting times. Donovan came to visit, and it was a magical time for all of us. It was a wonderful time. Love those people. You've stayed in some pretty illustrious side rooms. For instance, David Crosby, you actually wrote Wendy at his house, right? While you were living there? Yes. 
I don't even remember how it happened, but he invited me to stay in his house. At the time, were you couch surfing, but only with the most legendary musicians conceivable? They were not legendary musicians at the time, my dear. They were my friends. Before Wendy, I was recording with a guy named Steve Clark from Atlanta. And he's the first one who kind of took me into the studio. And I worked on horrible songs and horrible recording, trying to be something I wasn't. But... In that little place I had on Formosa off a fountain, there's one room and a kitchen and a little bathroom. Dickie Davis brought Neil Young for me to take care of him when he was sick. Guys were all living in this motel over on Sunset, and, and Neil got sick, and it was hot. And so Neil Young came in and reclined. This was before he got together with Stephen Stilt and yeah. David Crosby. We were kids together. We were taking care of each other. Stephen Stilt came to that house one night. He was hungry. It was the middle of the night. I opened the door and I said, Stephen, help yourself. And he went and raided my kitchen. So we were kids. We took care of each other. It must amaze you, though, looking back, because especially when, you know, when you're truly living life in the moment and not thinking about anything, but just going by intuition, you wind up stumbling into some pretty amazing circumstances. And you especially, you know, it seems like you're just wherever you go, whatever you do, it's right place, right time, right place, right time, just all over the place. When Windy hit and hit big, how did you feel? I mean, did you not really give a shit because you were going to do your thing no matter what? Or did it blow you away that you were just sitting for an entire month straight at the top of the charts? I didn't really know what it meant at the time. In fact, when I was up in El Granada with Peter Kalkinen, at the time it was all artichoke fields, beautiful place. And we had a house that we were renting up on a hill overlooking the bay. And I had a lawyer, I said, take care of my money because I don't know anything about money. Anyway, they accidentally sent me a check in the mail to my house in Half Moon Bay. And Peter and I opened this envelope. This is in the 60s, right? We opened this envelope envelope and it's said $22,000 and we looked at it and we couldn't figure out where the decimal point was this can't this can't be so that was I think the moment when I realized what the what is going on here I never really took charge of my finances mm -hmm. and uh, ended up getting really royally ripped off many ways, as many of us did. Didn't you retain at least half the publishing on Wendy? I read somewhere that you had no. You had no publishing? No. I went to Chuck K and I said, the association wants to record my song. Will you publish it for me? And that's what happened. I see. Anybody says anything else was not there. I was there. I do not, to this day, have half the publishing. Do you not make any money at all on Wendy? I do now, but certainly not very much. Oh, Lord. I do not make that much. I tried to get it back from Universal. I even said, you know, you guys want to buy it outright from me, make me an offer, but they're not interested. So it's okay. You know, we're okay. I bought a house in early 70s, a house that costs what my car costs. And I live in Venice, California, which is 
a great place to live. I'm, I'm close to the beach, and uh, I will live here until the day that I pass on over the Rainbow Bridge and join all my cats. How many cats? Well, I only have one now, but there have been many in the past. You have a very eccentric solo career. So your solo career kind of begins two years after Wendy is this major hit. And two years in the pop industry or whatever you want to call it at the time was like 10 years. I mean, you know, they were making groups do the impossible. Like the association, their second album came out like I think three months after the first one. That's just freaking insane. So your first album, Constant Companion, comes out two years after Wendy in 69 and you refused to do Wendy on the record, which I understand. Looking back, do you still side with that decision that you made? Or do you feel like it would have helped you to put it on? Remember that I actually was recording for A&M during the years after I wrote Wendy. I had signed with A&M, and so I was recording for them. And there are a lot of recordings on those other the CDs, the one uh, Hurried Life and uh, Wendy uh, uh, Friedman Songbook. That Stephen Stanley and Pat Thomas, bless his soul, put out. So there was a lot of recording going on and some wonderful stuff that I did. Uh, Van Dyke was involved. Tommy LaPuma was my producer. The last song on Chinatown, there's a line, so many things can go wrong when you give up your life for a song. Give up that song for someone to love and lose them both in the end. Hmm. And that is what happened to okay. Me. So I lost my contract with A&M and all those wonderful recordings I did. Van Dyke came in and played on High Coin. Uh, Matt Zabinac, Dr. John came in and played on The Letter. Randy Newman came in and right. played one of my favorite recordings I ever made. That Randy Newman song is one of my favorite recordings because when I hear myself singing it, I think I did it justice. It still moves me. Now, Wendy, you know that Randy played on it? You didn't know that Randy had played on it? No, I didn't. I But one thing I want to clarify, so your first solo album comes out in 69, but Wendy, a Ruth Ann Friedman songbook, those are all tracks for a record that never came out in 1968. Not all of them. They're also home recordings and the stuff that I did with this guy, Steve Clark from Atlanta, who went back to Atlanta. Actually, Dave Anderley wanted to buy my contract from him, but didn't have enough money. Steve Clark wanted $5,000 for my contract, and that was just too much money at the time. Life would have been different, huh? I mean, all David Anderley would have to do is pick up the phone and call what? Brian Wilson. I'm sure he could have gotten a check written on the spot. I don't know. That was what I heard. The Windy Record, I guess it's a compilation. It's mainly tracks from 1968 from the record that never got released at the time. Is that right? Some of them are, and then some of them are from even earlier. Things that we did at, um, what's his name, Skip and Flip. He had a, a studio over on Hudson in, uh, in Hollywood where you'd record downstairs around one microphone and then go upstairs and listen back. We'd all play around one microphone, man. We did not have yeah. tracks. If you can't Frankenstein the song together, you have to be good. And you hear it on that. You hear it on that CD. I love this record. This could be my favorite of your records. There's a oh, lot. I'm so glad. There's really? a lot of really strong okay. songs on it. I wouldn't chalk it up to you know the seminal early works of 
I, I think it's just as essential as anything else you've done. I appreciate that. The decision to not put Wendy on Constant Companion because you didn't want to be typecast, which is understandable because Wendy is not really an example of what you typically do. But looking back, do you feel like that was the right decision? Or do you feel like maybe, you know, in retrospect, hindsight being twenty twenty, etc.? I never have thought about it. To tell you the honest-to-God truth, I have not considered it until this very moment. Don't consider it. Everything you've done has been perfectly correct. And how do you see Constant Companion? How do I see Constant Companion? Yeah. Some of the songs I love still, the song I wrote for my nephew, Danny, I love that song. Uh, he's now a grown man <laughs> with babies of his own. Uh, Looking Back Over Your Shoulder is a song I wrote mm -hmm. after Peter and I split up. There are some songs on there that I still love a lot. Piper's Call with my 20-year-old, I don't know what you'd call it, my anthem. Some of them are good and some of them are okay. And I'm happy people like them. I'm happy that you're happy. I'm very lucky that some people found my old album and thought it was worthy of re-releasing. And that Pat Thomas, who you may know or may know of, who is a brilliant man and music historian and writer and drummer of a great group, of eclectic group that keeps changing members called Mushroom, found me re-released it, had it reissued on the water label, and it brought me back into the consciousness of the musical world. And since then, I have met some of the most extraordinary, kind, wonderful, you'll know the word, menschkite musicians who have taken me in and allowed me... Willie Aaron. On. Willie Aaron. I love him. Willie Aaron. David Jenkins, David Goodstein, Caitlin Wolfberg. I could go on and on. Just wonderful people. We're referring to the Los Angeles music scene. A lot of really good people. Before you return to the public consciousness, there's some things I'm very curious about. Number one, you wrote and sang songs for a movie I have not seen called The Peace Killers, which came out in 71. What was that work? I haven't heard that work. Oh. I'll send you, I think I have some of uh, the 48, they said, released it as a two-sided 45 record. I think I have a few of them. I'd be happy to send you some. It was a, a C movie filmed in Topanga. It's a motorcycle movie about the evil motorcycle gang and the hippie love peace people. Like the Wild Angels. Yes, only not as good. Right. And uh, so they asked me to write some songs, and I wrote one song, which is a the devil's tool and he thinks he's cool nobody better get in his world. that kind of song <laughs> and then i love and the dove white dove circles overhead reeling in the sun you know that kind of thing and i went to the screening of that movie and people were walking out saying oh that's a stinger but hey the music was good <laughs> Which made me feel good, but the producer's not so good. Anyway, yes, so that was just a momentary glitch. That would be a really good quote for the front of the album. The movie's a stinker, but man, the music's good. Yeah. I'm curious what happened. So you're on tour promoting, I'm guessing, Constant Companion. And all of a sudden, you just 
screech to a halt on purpose. You go back to your family's home in LA, something happened and you completely stopped recording music between 72 and 73. I want to ask what happened. My sister, Judy, who was 10 years older than I, beautiful and brilliant, killed herself. And I called from Reno, Nevada, where I had a trunk full of albums that I was toting around the country and seeing radio stations and found out that my sister was dead. And I came home and that was just the end of that for a long time. And I just stopped. In fact, you know, Joni Mitchell asked me, I, I ran into her at a party in Venice. She said, what happened, Ruthann? I said, I just lost my, I lost my desire. But I mean, you're heavily involved. Was it really because of your sister? Or do you feel like previous to that, that there were maybe hints in that direction, that it was not a ride that you wanted to take for the rest of your life? No, I don't know. I don't know. I just wanted, I wanted family. I needed to feel like I was part of family. I had most of my childhood, I really felt quite alone. And I wanted to feel like I was with somebody. I wanted to feel like I wasn't alone. You know, it's hard to say looking back now. I have a wonderful, I'm so, I always seem to be blessed because I'm an atheist, but I am, if there's a word blessed without it having to do with God, I am blessed that I have two beautiful, wonderful, amazing. How old are your daughters? They're in their forties and I have two beautiful grandchildren and I have this wonderful husband who says if he was me, he would never do anything but sit and write songs all day. And why don't I do that? And just, you know, life is strange. <laughs> like, you just don't know what is going to motivate you. And I'm just, I just really feel that I've been so fortunate to have survived this, the 60s and the 70s, because so many didn't. It's just overwhelming. The music business is a terrible business, and it's becoming more and more terrible as that I can see. Was there a time at some point before you left the industry where you were careening out of control and, you know, and that's what you're referring to about that you survived the 60s? Was there a tough patch? I had my struggle with drugs. I think a lot of us did. Here's the truth. The truth is that when I was, you want to hear the truth? I do. I will tell you, you can cut this out of the final whatever when i was 12 years old i was a chubby kid you want to hear the truth i'm ready to tell you when i was 12 years old i was a chubby child my parents took me to see dr carl hertz on ventura boulevard he gave me dexamil to lose weight and then i couldn't sleep so he gave me second all to go to sleep i was 12 years old jesus so you want to hear the Judy Garland story? Okay, so that set me up for life. And I don't think I need to say more. It took me a long, long time to stop. And but specifically those that's drugs? When, that's why I stopped doing music. That's why the music stopped. And that's when I stopped doing drugs. I married a lovely man. 
I had children, and the only songs I wrote were dinosaur songs and circle of friends songs for the nursery school. And it was not until Pat Thomas came back to me and said, these are worthy songs. They should be heard that I came back into music as a sober person. And that's what happened. I don't think a lot of people would tell you that truth, but that's the truth, Dave. Drugs destroyed my chance. Drugs destroyed my opportunity to be as successful as I might have been. But yet, honestly, Ruthann, and I mean this with all my heart, is that your career is exactly as it was meant to be. And instead of, you know, if you were to be prolific, it doesn't necessarily promise a good career. I mean, look at a lot of your contemporaries who exhausted what they had. You had to go and find that work-life balance. And the work-life balance for you meant no work. And I understand. I just left my career and, you know, doubled, quadrupled, quintupled down on this show. And uh, it really is a wonderful career. You're making vital music now. And there's very few people in your generation who are doing the same thing. And a lot of the reason is that, I mean, you've been storing up this life experience and now it's tumbling out of you decades later. And it's a wonderful thing to watch from the side. It is. Bless you for saying that. It's true. In, in the interim, though, you also became an inventor. So you were responsible for the Easy Rider portable stationary kit. You got to tell us. Oh, about that was fun. I was just noodling around. I don't know why I did it. I was playing with cardboard and I and I made a, a mock-up of it's like a cigarette rolling paper box, only with a space in the back for an envelope. So it looks like a giant package of rolling papers. And I found this paper laid bond that looks like cigarette rolling paper. And uh, we made the Easy Writer portable stationery kit. And the name of our company was the Easy Writer. I can't even remember. It is the portable stationary moving company. And the box looked like Easy Rider rolling papers. And we got we, we were doing really well in college campuses and, and head shops until the rolling paper people came after us with an injunction. So we quit. But it was a lot of fun. You had to have made good money on that because that's a perfect <laughs> idea for uh, thinking outside the box kind of stoner. The envelopes were in the back and you could uh, write your letters on the top. It was fun. It was a fun thing to do. And uh, it kept me going for a year or two when I was really feeling alone. So it was a good thing to do. Send me your address. I will send you a portable stationary kit. No way. Oh, you are the... I'll send you one. The glue is kind of gone, but we have wheat and white. <laughs> that is awesome. Thank you so much. Really, because that's like one of the cool, sparkling little gems about your life. You know, it's a different kind of life. You know, it's really touching to read it. When Water Records, is that the name of the company that re-released Constant Companion? Yes. When Water re-released the record, you were invited to play at a festival. You had to learn how to play guitar again. And so you went to McCabe's Guitar Shop, which is legendary, in Santa Monica, and you got lessons from somebody there who taught you your songs. 
The guy's name who taught me my songs was Kit Alderson, an amazing man who actually had been my daughter's guitar teacher at McCabe's. This is obviously a bizarre situation to request that somebody teach you your own songs. Did that feel weird? It was so weird, but you know, I hadn't played in so long. What happens is once you start doing it, the muscle memory comes back. Right. So he really, he gave me the beginnings. And then I started writing right away. And I cannot remember how to play the songs I wrote right away. There were a couple of songs that I really liked that I can't remember how to play. But uh, that's okay. They're out there. They're recorded so you can hear them. You don't what have to you, have me play them. What are you listening to? I mean, what's your taste like these days? Has it strayed into a different area or is it the same as it's always? I listen to the same old stuff. <laughs> I listen to Miles Davis. I listen to James Taylor. I listen to Fleetwood Mac. I'm sorry. I'm stuck. Look, I'm stuck so badly that I had to throw my life into a fucking trash can so I could enshrine, curate, and rate all this stuff to legitimize listening to it consistently on a loop. So I think I get what you're talking about. I feel like so much of the stuff, I, if I go to and listen to a band, except for individual people, there are people like Joe Burdett, who's just an amazing, I fell in love with him listening to him. He invited me to play in Atwater Village, and I played, and then I stayed and listened to him, and he's just wonderful to listen to the individual people. But the bands I'm listening to, it's like I'm listening to the same stuff, and I'm waiting for something new. It just struck me. There's an empty spot on the shelf where this particular album should reside, okay? It's, uh, I'm thinking uh, an album of approximately seven songs of meandering length that's got the spiritually revealing properties of an astral week's. But with the players that you play with live these days, Willie Aaron, you have a strong grasp on melody, but sort of let it drift through the cosmos and relay what has to be a, an incredible amount of profound wisdom gained from that life experience of yours. We are last known as the Jewish Space Lasers Corps. Uh, I need new songs, and so I am inspired, and I'm hoping to sit down and write some new songs so that the Jewish Space Lasers can once again perform and record, and that will be wonderful. That's my hope, and I'm hoping that it will come to me. Yeah, but you could do it right this second. You need zero dollars. But I don't have any. I need new songs. We need new material. You're reading a lot of books right <laughs> now. Okay, so this is the intake period. Yes. And then it's going to explode out of you, you know, when you least expect it to. I am taking many notes because as a 78-year-old woman, I have a perspective on this world that I think a lot of people share. And, and I'm hoping that it will happen very soon. Good. My husband says, sit down and pick up that guitar and write some songs. So I, I'm that's my goal. It's going to be a great record. By summer. Good. I'll let you know, Dave. I'll hold you to it. I'll send you nagging texts every day involving Jewish okay. guilt, the strains of which you haven't experienced in your entire life. You have described the title character of Wendy as you in your best incarnation. So Wendy is the dream you 
And I have to say that you sound like the best version of yourself on this particular day. And so congratulations on weathering the storm of the music industry and living a really impressive life. It's not all about an unbroken string of number one hits. It's living a full and meaningful life. And you've done that. Thank you, my dear. I appreciate this so much. All right, that about does it. A heartfelt discography thanks goes out to my beautiful wife and son, Jen and Mason. My guests, Bob Nastanovich, Terry Kirkman, Ruthann Friedman, and Jules Alexander. My incredibly loyal fans, and especially the entire Patreon community, the soldiers of sound. I love every last one of you guys and gals, and this show would not exist without you, my friends. Speaking of friends, it's high time for some new ones. They're in our Facebook group, Discography Soldiers of Sound. That's the best way to find out what's coming up on the show, but there's a hell of a lot more. You get recaps of the day in music history, the ability to pitch questions to guests, polls that put you in the driver's seat on guest and band decisions, access to a thriving creative hub if you're looking for a collaborator, and much more. And I'm so psyched to say we just broke the 1,000 membership ceiling so we are more than a thousand strong now so make sure you don't miss out you can find the link to the discography soldiers of sound facebook page right there in the show notes and if you don't mess with the zuck no sweat just email me at info at discography.com and i'll keep you in the loop so now that it's done and you want more another way to dive even deeper into the squishy comforting bosom of our pavement series is to visit episodes 49 through 58 which has bob nastanovich in a five episode series rating the entirety of the pavement discography plus a ton of other pavement related bonus stuff including spiral stairs doing roxy music not to mention the upcoming Bob Nastanovich Double Fantasy two-parter. But if you're more of a soft psych fan, be sure to check out our Woodstock Career Nosedive series, We Are Stardust, We Are Golden, of which both Sweetwater, Episode 79, and Burt Summer, Episodes 83 and 84, hold limitless wonders for you. Make sure you also definitely visit patreon.com slash discography and check out the thematically related deep dive as a music obsessive's way of life. Our Patreon's been up and running for a year now, and with two episodes a week reliably posted literally non-stop until this very week, there are close to 100 Patreon episodes at this point. That's an entire universe of incredible content available to you for the price of a cup of coffee a week. And of course, be sure to mark your calendars, because next Friday, August 25th, we're coming at you with one of the most unique and unforgettable interviews you'll ever hear in your entire life. Terry Kirkman and Jules Alexander from The Association in a 13-hour four-part interview in which they rate everything they've ever done. Trust me, you're not going to want to miss it. And so, from now till then, don't let our youth go to waste, lads and ladies. It's Discography. Discography.